Greetings, dear listeners. Back in the USA, I reconnect with Shadi. We do a deep dive into what it means to be very online. How much of our preoccupations and maladies are a product of being too into living in cyberspace? From Kanye's car crash outbursts to getting sucked into the whirlpool that is Twitter, we just can't seem to snap into talking about what really matters. Stick around for the bonus episode, for paying members only, where Shadi and I get into some weird and hilarious theological discussions before veering into my impressions from a recent trip to Taiwan and Japan. If you're not yet a subscriber, do become one by visiting wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. On to the show. Japan, which was in many ways even more interesting. Um, cool. We can talk about Kanye West. That, uh, <laughs> oh, you're, are you familiar with what's been happening? Um, so the thing about Kanye is that <clears throat> I don't think I really, I mean, I, I, I know of the man's work, but I, I don't think I've ever, <laughs> you know, spent any time listening to the man's work. And so you mean Kanye, his music, or do you mean his commentary? No, no, no. I do mean his music, and 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 so, I, I, it's not like I'm not aware of who Kanye is, but I really haven't been following. <laughs> and then you know, people who like have been fans of Kanye and stuff like that, I've just sort of heard over the last few years is, you know, he's brilliant, uh, he's a genius of sorts, but he's clearly schizophrenic, uh, like he's got mental illness, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and. Uh, you know, so watching this, uh, like everything else, it's this kind of like pop culture horror show. You know, you watch it with kind of, you know, some kind of, I don't know, resigned, uh, I don't know, kind of like... Fascination? Fascination, yeah. But then every so often I just remind myself, like, we're all transfixed by a man losing his mind in real time in front of us. And it's really sad, you know? It's just, it's, it just seems awful. Uh, yeah, but, it's... So yeah. I'll just share something with our dear listeners so yeah. you, they're just aware of some context. Um, right before, well, uh, right before this episode, I just had, you know, 20 minutes and I was like, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to start like some new like work stream. So I, I saw that Kanye was trending and I went to the InfoWars website to see what all the hullabaloo was about. And I actually watched about 15 minutes of Kanye, Alex Jones, and Nick Fuentes, the um, the white nationalist. I'm not even sure what to call him. But, Is he a Hispanic um, white nationalist or something? <laughs> the Latinx white nationalist? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's a it, no. It's a good point. No, but he's he's. Um, I guess we can just call him a Nazi. I think. What do right? you call people? No, <laughs> neo Nazi. Yes. A neo Nazi. I think. Um, or actually, maybe I don't even know anymore. Okay, so what I what I heard, and we're not going to include links because I I, I felt dirty watching this. Yeah, people could. It's find good it. to be aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they really wanted to, um, but it's obviously not something one wants to encourage. And also, I think you're precisely right that watching Kanye West in this kind of state. 
there's clearly a mental illness issue and it's not even just like my, like and i that's actually mean towards people who are mentally ill no precisely because a lot of people you know suffer from depression anxiety whatever else it might be we're not talking about that we're talking about someone who is just in a different plane yeah and it's a, it's sad to watch yeah no i think that's um right. so and just fyi to people i i couldn't I don't really understand why he was doing this, but Kanye was wearing not a mask, like a COVID mask, but a mask covering his entire face. Hmm. And so you don't actually see Kanye, the person. Well, he is there as far as we can tell. I mean, it'd be pretty hard to impersonate him on Alex Jones's show. So it, it does appear to be Kanye, but you can't, he's wearing, it's really weird. It's really bizarre. Um, and the crazy thing too is that basically Alex Jones com comes out of it looking like a moderate. Yeah, yeah. Because because Kanye basically starts saying things like I like Hitler. I like Hitler. Yeah. And that's not even hyperbole. Yeah, he's, he's like defending He said like Nazis got Hitler. a bad rap. We shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't criticize him so much. We we over criticize the Nazis. I think was the line I saw on Twitter <laughs> yeah, earlier today. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, it's like, and then and then Alex Jones, you you see his face, and he's like, "What did I get myself into?" And he's trying to push back gently, and it's just like a very, it's a very odd thing to watch. And um, also, Kanye said something like, um, "There's a reverse Holocaust against him," and that um, he, he, but that's not. I guess he said stuff like that before, but he, that's a kind of, um, and he talks very explicitly about. Um, Jewish media, like all these tropes, which you think that even people who are anti-Semitic, they try to be subtle generally, yeah. you know, Kanye at this point, there's no subtlety. It's like the most explicit anti-Semitism I've ever seen in any kind of public performance. Um, so anyway, that's just some context of like, I'm just sort of shocked that this has happened to him, uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, no, and it I is mean, relevant because Kanye did have dinner with Donald Trump a few days ago. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I mean, maybe that, that's something to, to also sort of kick around a little bit, right? You, so <laughs> I don't even know how to kick it around, right? It's, it's obviously, you know, uh, classic Trump dog whistle, you know, I don't know. And then classic Trump. You know, Kanye brought someone, I don't know who it was, like denial, non-denial, whatever the hell. But it's really interesting is, you know, um, then again, I'm not really following it that closely. I'm kind of still jet lagged and messed up from this trip, but just sort of passively following it. It's 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 sort of been a scramble to to pin Trump and Nazism and fascism on the Republicans more broadly so that they're, you know, they're everyone's watching that they're not condemning him enough. But then you saw like even Bibi condemned. I don't know if you saw that. Bibi Netanyahu condemned no. Trump. He said, this is not okay. And you have to not do that again. So, you know, you, I, it's even, even that little subplot was, was sort of interesting because, you know, after the midterms, um, it feels like the, the, uh, you know, Republicans are now trying to, I think they've, they feel like they have their chance to uh, rally around the fact that Trump is a loser, that like all the Trump candidates lost and cost him this election and all the rest of that. And, you know, the new standard carrier is Ron DeSantis. And, uh, and, and, you know, 
I, I feel like insofar as I've been watching uh, at all the sort of mainstream and, and liberal left part of the spectrum, they're all doing two things at once. One is, you know, out of one side of their mouth saying DeSantis is just as bad, if not as if not worse than Trump in some ways, because, you know, he's less crazy or something, but has all the, you know, all the evil and white supremacy and racism, it's it's all embedded in, in DeSantis. And on the other hand, desperately, desperately trying to keep Trump in the game and tied to the Republican Party, which, you know, I don't know, I, I uh, after the elections, yeah, it just seems to me, you know, that it's it's the most brilliant thing that Biden managed to do, uh, yeah, and I guess you and I haven't really spoken since the elections, but the most brilliant thing that Biden managed to do is to do the whole democracy is dying thing, right? Like, it, it when he gave that speech about coming to defend democracy, um, you know, I was just like, ah, that's not going to work. That's, it's, it's nonsense. But, you know, it, it, it worked, and it was a brilliant move when you, when you take at the same time into consideration that, you know, Democrats funded Trumpists in the primaries, uh, and, you know, against more moderate Democrat, uh, Republicans. And so, you know, like now looking back at everything that's going on, it's the best thing that can happen to Biden is that Trump runs again. And the best thing that can happen for the Democrats is that, uh, you know, Trump runs, uh, gets the nomination, and then I think gets blown out uh, in the next elections. And so, you know, it's, it's, I, you know, but me, let's I, not take it, but, but that. I, I, I just love the thinking. cynicism. And that's, you know, like, and, and pointing out how cynical the Democratic Party was in this whole election gives me, I, I respect Democrats so much more after this, this last, after the midterms because of the dark cynicism of where they went and basically played the entire base on this, on this democracy is dying thing. You know, I, I feel like because I'm, I'm, I'm less, you know, uh, tribally affiliated, I think, than you, I can just sort of appreciate this more. I feel like maybe reading your tweets or a little, more, uh, <laughs> less happy with the Democrats playing that game, but you know, well, whether or not it was effective, it, I think it's, you know, morally, I mean, for something can be effective and bad simultaneously. Um, like how much did Biden's democracy is dying speech actually make a difference? How much did that overall framing actually help Democrats? I think we have to be careful about assuming that this quote unquote worked, but even if it did work, or at least it didn't hurt Democrats. And I think, you know, I was I was wrong about that. I actually thought it was a bad strategy. I thought it would backfire. Yeah. Clearly it didn't, at least not in any you know obvious way. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact from my perspective that, you know, I have a strong moral um, and political objection to this kind of democracy is dying rhetoric first and foremost, because it's not accurate. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's true that democracy was on the verge of dying. So um, there's that. Um, but it's politics, and, you know, right? I, I don't love, I mean, well. I mean, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's basically, you know, I, it's 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 nice to think that politics should be about true things, but <laughs> like, it's just not. And Right, uh, but, but we can criticize it and say that it wasn't true and we don't have to be okay with that. I, you know, I mean, I, I, the, 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 so this is what I'm, I'm sort of getting at. I feel like, you know, you, 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 uh, 
feel like you need to be pointing out that this was untrue and, you know, we're better than speaking untruths. Whereas <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not, not feeling any ownership of it. I'm just sitting back and sort of quietly clapping as, you know, all the sort of, oh my God, we saved democracy people. I'm like, yeah, sure you did. Yeah, you did. You got played and good for the people that played you because as a genius political move, that's, that's literally my pose in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that they got played. I'm fine with that because, yeah. you know, I don't know what Biden believes in his heart. Um, his maybe hard for heart. Him it... <laughs> <laughs> the hard heart. The hard heart of uh, of uh, Dark Brandon, man. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't followed all the Dark Brandon stuff, but we don't have to go into that rabbit hole. But I did want to. Um, I did want to bring up the. Okay, so wanting Trump to run again because he can be blown out, and that will discredit the Republican Party further. They'll be the party of losers. All of that. Um, I I don't know if I want to take a chance on that. So I can see how Democratic strategists are thinking to themselves, oh, wouldn't it be great if Trump is the candidate again instead of DeSantis because DeSantis is competent and um, Trump will self-destruct. I just, it's it sounds a bit too much like the reasoning that I heard in 2015 and 2016 when you know, a lot of people wanted Trump to be the, a lot of Democrats wanted Trump to be the nominee because they thought he'd be easier to beat. Let's name uh, names. John Chait was the number one proponent. Famously oh, wrote that article back uh, in, in, in yeah. 2016 about that being like, oh, this is great. You know, this is exactly <laughs> the person we need. And that's what I, was, I thought it was really interesting, you know, reading Chait's stuff. Now, you know, he wrote an article before the election, uh, before the midterms uh, about DeSantis, you know, which you know, I, I I invite you to read, and I invite our readers to read, because I went and read it after DeSantis's big win, to see you know what the what actually is the the horrific core, you know the the molten you know heart of evil beating at the center of DeSantis. And honestly, I I think Chait did a valiant effort trying to do it, but I was certainly not convinced. I was like, oh okay, this this is fine basically. Um, but you know, what was so, the argument? Like, what are the evil things that DeSantis has done? So so here's the thing. It was before the midterms. Uh, sorry, it was right after the midterms. Then I went on this trip, and I, 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 I don't remember honestly. That's that's the the extent of what I can tell you. That like nothing in that piece jumped out at me as threat to the republic. Yeah, he's a he's he's a he's a populist. Um, you know, he's anti-immigrant. I think I think the anti-immigrant part was maybe the strongest thing. You know that, that yeah, that's saying. all you got. That's not and a that, whole and lot that, to go on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so so you know. Chait wrote that piece before, and then uh, I think he wrote a very perceptive piece right after the midterms, which was saying more or less, uh, you know, openly, uh, you know, um, trying to link uh, Republicans to to uh, to Trump again, and saying if that article I remember a little better, it was something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, it just proves that uh, Republicans, uh, you know, will not be able to actually motivate the base uh, without Trump on the ticket, I think was his argument. Which actually that goes to your argument that this, this is playing with fire. Cause it, it, it may well be true that if Trump is actually running as opposed to just sort of nominating, handpicking people and standing back and seeing what happens, uh, that he will nominate, uh, you know, motivate the base to a certain extent, and it won't be the blowout that everyone expects, you know, after these midterms. And but it's and not even just about motivating the base; it's that in a deeply polarized electorate, a fifty-fifty country, um, almost quite literally fifty-fifty, at least as far as the midterm results 
Um, I think actually Republicans did slightly better, maybe by 3% in the overall national vote. But anyway, it's a pretty closely divided um, electorate. Um, so then if there's only two candidates, then there's always a chance that someone like Trump could win somehow. Yeah. And that's what we should have learned in 2016. I'm just surprised that we're having this same conversation over. Do people just not learn? They want to play with fire again? What if something happens to Biden in the days leading up to the vote? What if, you know, God forbid, you know, Biden has serious health issues um, before the election, or there's some kind of October surprise, or maybe Trump somehow moderates. Yeah. And like somehow is able to appeal to a growing number of Hispanics, brown people, Arabs. Um, there are a growing number of brown folks who probably aren't going to vote for Democrats yep. next time around. Yep. Do we really want to test this? Do we really want to see what happens? Are we so confident that Trump will be blown? I'm, I'm just, it's just, it's It's not just cynical. It's, it's, um, it's tempting fate. And if, you know, if you believe in God, yeah. then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm being slightly flippant here, but you generally don't want to invite God's wrath in such a manner. Yeah. Don't tempt, don't, don't tempt the, the, the Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> into, into because vengeance. what if the Lord decides to tip the scales? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Look, the I Lord mean, can do that. Uh, here's here's what what I'm what I'm least enthused about is is as you said, if if something were to happen to Biden in the run up, I I, I don't, I, I can't contemplate voting Kamala Harris versus Trump. I just can't. Like, no, you just probably abstain, and that's okay. I I mean it's okay, but it's kind of isn't because like Trump's pretty bad. Like you know I I, I don't want to <laughs> mince words about that. Um, Okay, but if you think that Trump is that bad, then you would vote for Kamala. Right, so but I, then, do I, then really, I don't really buy this. But that's, I mean, you're right. I mean, but that's, I'd have to face that. And 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 I really think she would be terrible for the country. Um, yeah, but how terrible, really? I, let's also not exaggerate here. Like, how bad would a Kamala administration actually be? It it would not be the end of the world. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, to the, to the extent uh, that Trump is sort of like malevolent and incompetent, and she's just merely incompetent and, you know, platitudinous and incompetent. I guess I, I guess I'd, I'd have to vote for the non-malevolent incompetent at that point and hope that, you know, she she at least wouldn't be fighting the deep state. The deep state would run her. And yeah, you know, so I guess yeah. I guess that's fair. No, I'd I'd vote for the the uh, the you know less less toxic incompetent at that point. Which is what all elections essentially are: voting for the less the lesser evil. evil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how does that how does that play into your your you know minimal democracy? I mean, isn't it? I, I you know, isn't isn't it bad if we're you know, that deep polarization and we're just sort of doing negative partisanship? Does it is that does that do anything to your minimal democracy theory? And you know, how, how would it though? Um, because if it's if if pure negative partisanship uh, increasingly determines everything, uh, I I feel like one of the correlations of that, and we're seeing it already, uh, you know, arguably even without Trump, we were seeing it, is that negative partisanship necessarily leads to a delegitimization of the system. Because, you know, uh, if you're just voting against the other side, and that's what all that's motivating, motivating you, and it's motivated you for 20 years to do just that, 
the next thing that happens is is to say, well, you know, uh, questions about legitimacy of the, of the process, questions about the other side being so bad that they would, you know, destroy the country. Uh, you you lose that sense of common purpose, right? If you're if you're solely motivated by by negative partisanship, I don't Isn't think that- we need common purpose. But you know me on this. I, I don't believe in consensus. Not a common union. purpose, not consensus. But you do believe that you need that 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 minimum respect for the uh, for the other side winning. And negative partisanship yeah, really but- does mean that the other side, you know, at the limit, is you know the end of the republic because that's what we're getting at. Yeah, with you know, a lot of I'm this just stuff. not sure. I'm not sure I see that link because I, for example, will. Um, continue voting for the Democratic Party, not because I like the Democratic Party, but because Republicans are worse. I don't, but I'm also someone who is more than comfortable saying that if Trump wins in 2024, fair and square, we have to respect that as a legitimate outcome. I don't see that one follows the other. Hmm. I think it's perfectly fine to be like negatively partisan, but still not, because, you know, protest votes are part of the Democratic process, you know, in in a lot of the world, you know, even when we look at Italy, why did they vote for a far right party? You know, a lot of Italians voted. I mean, well, yeah, that too. Well, yes, but also as a protest vote, it doesn't mean they necessarily love the brothers of Italy. It's that they want to send a message to the incumbents that they're pretty angry about the status quo, right? So it seemed, that seems totally, it seems fine. it's the utopians that I'm most concerned about, the the ones who believe in this perpetual arc of history bending, because that that's different than negative partisanship. That is about having a certain teleological view of human history. Yeah. And if anyone stops the progress of history, then they are enemies of the state, they are enemies of progress. But that's not that's not negative partisanship on its own. That's like a different level, and those are the ones that I'm most concerned about. I think. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? No, oh, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, that's the you know, the the thing that 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 uh, yeah, maybe we should also keep in mind, and and what I think is a is, was a good reminder of, um, and during the midterms is that you know our our sort of very online lives um, and how we even conceive of these. Uh, these fights uh, and these elections, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was, it's very hard to actually nail down any sort of, I think, very coherent narrative for what happened in the midterms, um, you know, and if nothing else, the inability to nail down any sort of narrative just proves how healthy democracy is in the country, right? I mean, I think that's the, well main, the main takeaway I could get from the elections, like, huh, okay, everything's actually pretty good. Like, I, I you know. I am, I am, just perpetually impressed by American democracy, the resilience of our system. I don't want to go overboard. I'm not like trolling people here, but I really, it is incredible. It is incredible. So, you know, even if you look at election day itself and people have memory hold this already, no one talks about this anymore, but there were so many warnings about voter intimidation at the polls that lit like, there would be violence. People wouldn't, I mean, and I was reading this NPR article. So, you know, from a, not just an objective source, but a source that would be predisposed to emphasizing irregularities and Republicans, you know, doing foul things at the ballot box. I think they said something like in this article, included link in the show notes, that there were literally no major incidents. Yeah. 
that it was just like the normal snafus that you have in any electoral cycle, but they they couldn't even like come up with incidents to highlight as, you know, so the fact that in the run-up, we kept on hearing these warnings and basically none of it came to pass. First of all, it tells you that people who are being alarmist were basically taking the piss. Yeah. But it also tells us that our democracy is resilient and we should be proud of that and happy about that. And that's why like, I'm, I've never been more, you know, again, I wanna be careful about not overstating this. My brother will probably have an issue with it if I do, but I've, I've never been more confident about American democracy, not only surviving, cause that's pretty basic, but flourishing. Yeah. I mean, I just have the, the idea that our democracy could ever die, the idea that we would descend into civil war. I actually feel, I, I feel a little bit sheepish for entertaining these worst case scenarios, they didn't even deserve to be entertained. I agree. The idea of a civil war, and you know, people can say, well, we didn't mean a civil war literally, but no, then we what's did. the point we did. of you? And you and oh, I talked we about did? it. We, we talked about it in those terms. I mean, we took it seriously in our discussions. I think we both ended up saying it's probably not gonna happen, but we took it seriously. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I feel bad for taking it seriously. Well, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I, I do sort of want to get into that because that's, I think, part of this like very online world that we live in and how it's good to just sort of snap out of that every so often. But, <clears throat> you know, just to, to add something and maybe, you know, uh, since we're, we're talking to your brother directly, uh, I, I thought Jason Willick just, you know, just today published a really good piece, which is another thing that I think was very, was very much a token of faith among Democrats, which is that, uh, you know, that, that, Specifically, you know that most of our institutions are counter-majoritarian and and uh, imperfectly reflect the true nature of the country, uh, and that Democrats are are fundamentally disadvantaged in the Senate. And Jason goes through both the House races and Senate races, points out that like none of that has basically come to pass in this in these midterms. That basically, the the midterms show. Uh, I think reasonably faithfully reflect the deep polarization and division in the country at this point. And that, you know, neither party with all the sort of talk about, you know, we need to abolish the filibuster. We need to like basically, uh, well, you know, we can still talk about the court, I guess, but like, you know, that, that, uh, you know, there's talk about, about, uh, expanding the house and therefore, you know, again, somehow, um, making, you know, making the Senate less vital and, and the rest of it because it's, it's counter-majoritarian and evil. It's just not true. It's just literally not true. Or not at least, only is it not true, <clears throat> yeah. it, it's like more than not true. Because if you look at, um, I don't know the latest numbers because I know that people were still calculating, but if if I recall, um, it was it was a 3% spread on the national vote as I, as, as I alluded to earlier. So Republicans actually won a lot more, you know, yeah. not a lot more, the but the popular you know, vote went to Republicans and they yeah, the freaking got exactly. slapped. Yeah. And, yeah. They, and they lost and they lost the Senate. Yeah. And the the House is much more evenly matched than yeah. anyone expected. So it's just funny that um and this is my basic critique that a lot of folks on on the Democratic Party side are just complete opportunists. They're completely outcomes oriented. They're not going to be complaining about the Senate. Yeah, you know, it's just it's it's so. I don't I don't know how to make sense of it. It feels to me so incredibly cynical that people don't even pretend to have consistent principles of any sort. Well, let me let me though say I maybe I'm being too generous to Democrats, i.e. the the you know the the sort of <clears throat> the brain trust that actually ran these elections uh, on, on and I and 
imputing cynicism to them. I think it, you know, and I, I wouldn't even impute opportunism to uh, what, what we're talking about now, this kind of stuff. I just think it's like, to me, what it points to is, is actually how political science is is a, a sort of silly field, you know, when it comes down to, because you had so many political scientists talking about, you know, again, our, 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 our institutions are rigged up in such a way we need to, you know, come up with all sorts of fancy different ways to count votes, you know, from ranked choice voting on down and new innovations, less right. And like, you know, new constitutional convention, we really need to refound this country in a more, and, and I, it's, it's, to me, you know, all those arguments, you go back and look at them, it's like, well, I mean, we, we, we can try and do these things. You know, I, it's, I, I, maybe, maybe outcomes would be different. But it, it, to me, it's just, it, it, it points to like a, a deeper sort of rot and fraud in, in, the, in the whole sort of, I don't know, in a, in a field that is clearly itself quite partisan. And, uh, but then, you know, is, is really does, I think, takes itself very seriously as a science um, mm. on this sort of stuff. And it's, it's to me, these elections and a lot of those arguments are just delegitimizing about a lot of that sort of crap, you know? Hashtag no, not all political scientists. Yes, yes, yes. Let's I be know. fair here. Yes, political scientist Shadi Hamid, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's good not but, to be credentialed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think, look, I think you're right. You know, unfortunately, a lot of political scientists, I um, mean, some some listeners might recall the letters that scholars of democracy wrote about, there has been a number of these things warning about American democracy dying and, you know, issuing these very alarmist statements and trying to represent the profession and saying, basically, we are the experts yeah. and we say this is happening. Um, you know, look, it's, it's, it's almost too easy to impugn experts and people who, Look, we all do it to some extent. You know, I you know I sometimes fall back on expertise when it's useful to me. You know, no one's perfect, but to sort of say that political science says X, yeah, that's where I really get annoyed because it's sort of like the science says it's all these appeals to a definitive position as if everyone in a particular profession has this view, which is almost never the case. There's always dissent. Yeah. There isn't anything approaching consensus among political scientists on a lot of these issues, but is there consensus among left-leaning political scientists? Well, yes, and that's where obviously, you know, ideological blinders p play a role. But so, you know, what, what's I think useful though at this point, uh, you know, for all of us that, that, that choose to do this is to, to to now just point out that that how self-serving this is, and you know, I think the 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 worries about the fate of democracy are not going to go away because ultimately, because it's 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 proven to be such an effective get-out-the-vote tool. So it's going to be here for this whole time. But was it's it gonna, though? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's maybe not. I'll take your point that that we don't know that. But I think I think it's it's. Uh, it's believed by enough rank and file people that democracy is in threat and what all the sort of, uh, uh, you know, stoking of these fears in the run up to the election have left a mark on a lot of people, just like, you know, COVID has left a mark on Taylor Lawrence and, you know, uh, she, <laughs> she, 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 she uh, can't let that go. I feel a lot of people are not going to be able to let go of the fact that this election proves more or less to my satisfaction this country is actually pretty healthy. So, yeah. you know, can I but, ask you this though? Why yeah. can't people let go of things? Like what's 
not to say that we're like the better ones and that we're able to rise above and we're able to become when others can't become, but I think there's an interesting psychological question that sometimes sometimes people latch on to a particular narrative and it it ends up orienting their entire worldview and they can't let go, they can't adapt, they can't reconsider. And, you know, we're all we're all potentially you know, under threat from like, you know, we all have to protect against that. That's why I've said often that I worry about my dislike of the wokes distorting my political views and I have to do what I can to protect against that so mm -hmm. I don't go overboard. Mm -hmm. So we all have to be vigilant. But I just wonder, like some people can't, they can't let go. What's cool, like, what is that about? Well, so... <clears throat> To what extent do you think that's, you know, just to get back to this, like this very online thing, you know, I, I here, here's something that, that struck me as, you know, Twitter is going through its convulsions, um, you know, Elon Musk doing some stuff, trolling a lot, uh, people losing their minds over it. Um, I remember journalists in particular, um, and I mean, I think you can speak to this. I just don't have a big enough following uh, and not enough people hate me to like properly experience it. But but a lot of people hate you online. You have a lot of followers. And, and you know, sometimes when I when I when I like actually take a peek at what's going on in your, you know, any one of these like threads that go viral that you do, it really is it's spectacular. Um, and and. You know, it's, it's, I wonder to myself, like, you know, could I hack it? And you, you, you and I have talked about this, maybe not online, but, but certainly in private, you know, like, um, what, what that must be like. But, but the, the, the thing that I remember is, um, journalists, <coughs> excuse me, um, journalists complaining about bullying on Twitter and the, the real psychological damage that, like this would do to them, you know, which, you know, is, seems to me like that echoes of that are what's also fueling this insane panic as like, you know, Elon Musk supposedly loosens the reins on discourse on Twitter and, you know, hate is, is flooding back onto the platform and, and whatever else. Um, maybe, maybe if you do have, you know, a hundred thousand followers, it, it becomes unwieldy and sort of emotionally draining and, and like really psychologically bad. But it always struck me that like, I don't know, I just, I just, I don't know who these people are on Twitter. If someone comes at me, it's like, I just, I, I, I get like my own personal little, you know, jolt of satisfaction when I tell them to go shut the hell up and, and, or I mute them without even responding to them. I just like move on with my life. Um, and, and there, there, there's something, there's something about like the, the very online life, I think that, that, is it that it, it accentuates a certain kind of fragility in people? Is it that fragile people are drawn to having a very online existence and then hmm. they get sucked into it in such a way and that it like, it makes them worse? Uh, is it mental illness? Like we're talking about Kanye, you know, like I, does like being online make us mentally ill? You know, hmm. I, there was a, there was a, I don't know if you've ever uh, read any essays by uh, this, uh, this young woman called Catherine D, uh, default friend. She has like a oh. Substack. Um, she's like writes really interesting stuff. I'd actually would be really interesting to have her on uh, at some That's point. That's a good I, idea. Okay. I read something by her two days ago, I think. 
um, which was really good about, you know, I, she writes these kind of, you know, rambling, I think usually very thoughtful, but kind of all over the place essays. And this one really, I think, did a good job at nailing down something about people's both like, you know, uh, like the, 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 uh, how their sense of self both becomes fragmented by being online and then also how their emotions and attachments to relationships online somehow get exaggerated and become more than they are. And it like, you know, she hmm. even like gestures that it leads to some kind of, you know, online autism and people and things like that. I don't know. I thought it was a really interesting and provocative, though not like there wasn't a single thesis in the piece, but I thought she was getting at some really good stuff. So I don't know, yeah, that sort of stuff's kicking yeah. around in my mind about like, you know, what what is it about this? And what is it about Twitter? And why are people so dumb online and, and all the rest of this? Um, you know, I don't know. Does that, does yeah, that resonate? We, oh, totally. And we should we should probably have her on. That sounds really really uh, relevant. Um, I think that, so I was thinking about this just the past few weeks with people leaving Twitter because of Elon Musk ostensibly, which I think is a bit of a bluff. Some people have though, as far as I can tell, They'll or they're back. limiting their Twitter usage yeah. or they're protecting their accounts and going to alternatives like Mastodon, which I did join. Did you? Just to see what it's like. I have to send you something uh, about okay. basically how Mastodon, you know, actually is not freedom. I mean, basically, uh, who's... It's, I was going to say that. Look, yeah, I don't feel comfortable posting anything on Mastodon because there's a perpetual threat that the owners of the server yeah. that you're on will yeah. boot you out yep. if you say something that's not ideologically congruent. Exactly. So I'm on a, journal I'm on a journalist um, server... Um, I, I, um, I was well, actually I thinking, get, I was thinking of setting mm -hmm. up a wisdom of crowds master on server. Oh, actually. I thought cool, that would be kind actually. of a fun thing to do. I don't do. know. Well, I don't know if it would be cool, but maybe, yeah. <laughs> I could do that pretty easily. I mean, I, I, I remember I played with Mastodon, you know, before like normies actually, you know, uh, figured it out. I remember years ago, I was like, ah, oh, this is a pretty cool idea. Screw Twitter, screw having a corporation run this whole, whole sort of thing. So I played around with it. I'm sure it's better now than it was then. It was sort of a mess back then. Um, I mean... It, it's definitely like, uh, it's it's a fine app, like it runs okay. It's just the issue that it doesn't encourage pluralism. It doesn't encourage alternative opinions. It doesn't mm. encourage dissent. And that's why I don't say anything on the server because I know right when I challenge the predominant view, they're pretty much all left of center journalists who are pretty woke. Mm. And I know that once I say something against, like, I don't know, Parker Malloy or something on, like, trans issues, um, <laughs> they're going to be like, oh. And I, all I wanted to say was, like, someone was making, making I think, a really um, tendentious argument about how – I can't even remember. I won't even, like, try to describe it. But basically, I, I wanted to – like, people can legitimately differ on the trans debate. Mm. And everyone was sort of basically saying there's only one right position to have on this. And all these people who question um, puberty blockers are basically the equivalent of bigots and racists. And they were just saying that, like, this is just the new front of the civil rights struggle is this was on giving your Mastodon server. Yeah. And the Mastodon journalist server. Good Lord. Yeah. And I thought I just wanted to just I thought. Well, I want to respond to something someone said and just be like, well, look, like reasonable people can disagree. There is a debate. 
people have a right to be concerned about how this affects their children, especially if it comes to long-term effects and so forth. But I'm like, even if I said something as gently phrased as that, yeah. I would be booted. Yeah. And I just don't like, well, I guess I would be okay. But um, but the very fact that there's that this kind of self-censorship, I don't self-censor on Twitter. And yeah. that when people say, well, oh, free speech isn't like a real thing. No, Twitter is actually better on a lot of these metrics because you can say what you want to say without the fear of, well, you do have the fear of being hounded off Twitter. I get that. Yeah. But this is where I think I'm different than some people that I get attacked a lot, as you mentioned. It's never occurred, like, it's not the end of the world. And I, when I get it, when I get attacked, it's actually like pretty aggressive. Yeah. I don't like to, yeah. it's not, it's not for me to play the victim or to complain about it, but, um, yeah, people come at you. It's, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's a, personal, it's, it's intense. But you seem very grounded. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're not, you're not a, you're not a mental patient. Whereas I feel like, <laughs> where I feel like a lot of people who, who have, you know, followings, not nearly as big as yours, but you know, probably half yours, uh, successful journalists and things like that. And they wilt and, and they demand protection from Twitter, from mean people. And you know, it's like, okay, doxing is one thing, death threats, are, but even like death threats on Twitter are sort of like whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like, Okay, I've know. gotten threats of violence. I don't actually think it's worth- um, Reporting to the Reporting cops. or making an issue of it. And um, even at times, you know, there have been times where, um, you know, folks at Brookings have come to me and said, Shadi, you know, we've seen that you've been getting attacked a lot and and even some threat, you know, there's some threats that we've seen and, and that sort of thing. And just to know that we're keeping an eye on that. And I, you know, I appreciate it yeah. because, you know, at some point it could actually be a concern. I mean, I hope it, I hope it won't become that. But, you know, in the ISIS period, there were actually, um, um, I don't want to say too much about it, but like, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of us who have public profiles have had to think about issues around personal security and so forth. Um, Did you, you know, see the story that, that Iran is trying to kill Bernard Henri Levy? Speaking of that. Oh yeah, I saw. I, I was. I I didn't read the article. I was shocked to see that though, because yeah. that's kind of crazy. I right? mean, it wasn't the, the, the article wasn't about him. He was listed as one of many, many people. But that you know, the Iranian state is now basically you know sponsoring hits on all sorts of prominent critics, and he was among them. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look. So that that should put things in, into perspective. Um, people like him have to actually be concerned about their livelihoods and some people actually have to hire, you know, security and actually, you know, change their lives in some way. And of Salman course, we know Rushdie. what happened to Salman Rushdie yeah. a couple of months back. So it's just kind of silly to me that it's just, it's, it's absurd. Like it's so, people have the right to be mean to you. People have the right to call you names. Um, that's part of what it means to be a public figure. And some people just think that it's almost their birthright to not be criticized or to not be attacked. Um, and people have every right to personally attack me and to use racist slurs against me and to say that I'm an, you know, whatever it might be, an Uncle Tom, a brown trader, whatever, you know, the whole list of things. Yeah. People can say whatever they want. It's not the end of the world. And it's almost disrespectful to people whose lives are really on the line, like, you know, whatever you want to say about Bernard Henri Levy, I mean, he's sort of absurd in his own way, but he's also, he's also, you know, dealing with 
serious things like that because he is famous enough and apparently he is enough of a target for the Iranian authorities to consider doing something against him. Yeah, they perceive him as enough of a threat to, you know, actually invest $150,000 apparently to have him killed, which, you know, it's not nothing. It's certainly not nothing. Yeah, that is, okay, that is, I didn't know that was the price. That's actually, that's pretty serious. No, yeah, 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 quite. Quite wow, wow, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know, but maybe it's part of it is that these journalist folks and like, I don't know, vaguely center left commentators who think that they have the truth, that they're just so used to being, there's a certain sense of entitlement. They're used to being deferred to. They think that they should be the gatekeepers. They, they're the ones who think that they should be the arbiters of what's misinformation yeah. and what's not misinformation. So I think some of it has to do with how they perceive their role in society. Does that yeah. does that sound no, right? I think so. I think so. Look, I mean, I, I think you you hit your you hit the nail on the head with misinformation, disinformation. I mean, it's just like it's faulty epistemology on the part of these people. Like, you know, what is knowledge? What is the truth? They don't ever, ever ask these questions. Uh, not in any sort of meaningful way. It's just self-evident to them. And it's just like, well, obviously this is true. And, you know, and then it's, then we're off to the races with that sort of stuff. That entitlement to it is, I think, key. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, the only, the only thing as I think about all of this is that, you know, you, you get a lot of sort of, you know, racially motivated stuff and, and, uh, um, uh, religiously motivated stuff and, and, and some violence. I, 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 I do, think probably women's experience on online is much worse than men's though. I, I just think that it's like add on top of that, just, uh, you know, most people trying to have sex with them and, or like if they hate them, like making rape, like rape violence, you know, like, I think, I feel like yeah, probably no doubt. for yeah. women, it like, as soon as there's some like hatred towards women, it turns to like rape threats. And I, I can imagine that's actually, you know, a level of unpleasant that, that we don't have to deal with. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And so, um, and that's why it's male journalists and commentators who complain about being victims that are the worst yeah. because they have really nothing to stand on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But still, but look, you know, not yeah. everyone can be as great as we are. That's the bottom line. <laughs> that here. is the bottom line. That is absolutely the bottom line. No, but you know, still, I, 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 I do wonder also if it's, if it, if it is, this being like very online, you know, like that's, that's why I just sort of, you know, traveling as much as I have been this year. And, and especially there's like this trip just going off to Asia. It's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's interesting to be in a completely different set of circumstances. And I mean, even not just not tied to us Twitter though. I mean, I've, you know, we've talked about that before, like even going to Europe and it's like the perspective's different and the issues are different. The sort of the, the debates in America seem far away, but like going halfway around the world, like even the sort of professional stuff that, you know, I do like foreign policy in Europe, even that seems so far away and so, so differently inverted being, being far away. But it just makes me think though, that, that, you know, there is something about our very online lives and, that that actually makes us actually not very good at seeing things as they are sometimes. Um, again, that's kind of a banality. That's sort of like, you know, uh, normies, normies are doing their normie things. And, you know, we, we have our, our, our sort of meltdowns and, and worries. But, you know, election time comes out, normies come out, they vote. 
Uh, they vote what they care about and uh, they go home and then they go back to their normal lives, which is watching sports and, you know, maybe having an affair or something like that. But that's, that's the extent that's what of normies, it. That's what normies do. Isn't it? <laughs> I don't Actually, know. don't know. We don't. Ah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it would be a funny thing to like know the stats on, mm. like how many Wisdom of Crowds listeners have uh, cheated on their spouses mm. after marriage, obviously, because, you know, that's what we're concerned about here. Yeah. Um, I just wonder what the percentage would be. Should we do a poll? <laughs> commission a poll? <laughs> so, you know, this is going really off topic, but one, like when I think about like, what heaven could actually entail. Mm -hmm. And this to me would be like one of the strongest selling points, mm -hmm. which is basically that if you get into heaven, you can ask God for basically data on any question you have covering any group of people in any particular time span in human history. So if you wanted to know, for example, like, um, like, I'm just trying to think like some kind of thing that you would never be able to know in real life that um, people who walked by you, what did they think about you when they walked by you? <laughs> and you could like aggregate all that data and you could like have a whole spectrum of like, oh, I, like, I don't know. Like you could really find, like just think about all the things you've wanted to know about what people think about you or like, at parties and you're in boring conversations, or maybe you think the conversations are fun, but you don't know how, how other people are perceiving the party. And you could pick particular parties that you remember and be like, I want like a full debrief on what every single person was thinking at every single second during the entire party. So you know, towards me and towards other people. You know what you're, two, <laughs> two things popped in my mind as you were saying this. One was, you know, as you first started talking about this, I was like, man, Shadi's got like, like basically the, the nerd dream that I think like basically drives Google, right? It's to have like all the data on everything and just being able to query it all at once and just get it right at the tip of your things, right? That's like that, that like weird Silicon Valley dream. But then as you kept talking about this, did you ever see that extras episode where, where Ricky Gervais is talking to Patrick Stewart? No, no. <laughs> Patrick Give me Stewart. the gist. I, the gist is Patrick Stewart's like, he, he's talking, if I remember correctly, Ricky Gervais come, brings some script to him and Patrick Stewart's like, yes, yes, yes. And, and you know, he, and, and somehow it devolves into Patrick Stewart saying that he's written several scripts and they all involve him walking by and just like seeing a beautiful woman and she's just naked immediately. <laughs> that that's his superpower. <laughs> just like naked. It, it's an amazing sketch. We'll put it in the in the show okay, notes. Okay, yes, it, it's, I want to, yeah. It's really remarkable. <laughs> but it also sounded a little bit like that when you're talking about what heaven might be. It's like you're a Patrick I didn't Stewart. say anything about, I didn't say anything about that, though. No, you about, didn't. Like, to be fair, you didn't. Uh, but it was this idea of like, I could just, <laughs> someone walks by and I immediately know what they think about me. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I could hear you saying it in a Patrick Stewart voice, that's all. Yeah, it was, so I also wonder, like, you could also do any number of things, like, um, like what percentage of your friends had like legitimately racist thoughts at what points in their lives? And then you do like a whole spreadsheet or you can do like a whole data plot covering. And it would be interesting to see like some of your close friends 
to what extent they become more or less racist over time. What's legitimately racist? Like which of your friends become like proper re- reactionaries in their old age? But what what's what's how do you define properly racist? Well, you could well, I guess in heaven you could come up with any definition you wanted and then you could have all these different metrics depending on your preference for different definitions of racism. If you want to use like what's now like now everything's you know, racist. for some people who are super woke, you know, pretty much anything can be racist. So you could see based on that. But if you want to have a more objective metric, you can use like proper racism yeah. and see who's like, which one of your friends was like flirting with proper racism hmm. Hmm. in their heart. That would be interesting. Would, would, so here's a question, a theological <laughs> question. Would, would God allow this? Would God allow you that kind of data? But God, but if we God consider knows, God but why would He share it with you? Like, I mean, you know, like, is it, because, is it? But if heaven is about getting any, like, heaven is about experiencing any kind of pleasure that comes to mind. Why would that kind of pleasure be removed from the equation? Because well, that's not asking a whole lot. That's just data. But so, so, okay. So let's say, uh, you know. It turns out that as I grew older, before I, I mean, died, seventy-two virgins—that to me is more problematic. Than okay, data. we can get to that. But like, let's say as I grow older, I become more authentically racist, and yet somehow I end up in heaven, or do I not? As a result, like, oh, oh yeah, there's definitely racist. I mean, come on. So they're racist in if heaven. If racist so- people can't enter heaven, then like that's gonna <laughs> mean heaven's like a very small number of people. Okay, so so I'm in heaven up there, but don't I get some data privacy? Like, you get to read my shit. Like in heaven, just because it gives you oh, pleasure. Oh, it's a good point. Like if it infringes on someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's actually a good. I hadn't actually thought. Is about there privacy that. in heaven? There I are... mean, that's the interesting thing. Are there privacy laws in heaven? How does this work? Yeah, because if someone else makes it to heaven, then you're getting you're getting like a data dump on what they thought about in their temporal life. Exactly. Like, and then you huh. you'd think less of me in heaven. We couldn't like do wisdom of crowds in in heaven. I'd be sad. It's an other, another interesting question, which I've actually thought about a little bit. And there is some like the, you know, theological uh, debate about this is to what extent you um, still have contact or, 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 or do you still have some of your old relationships? So, Oh, you don't? Um, well, um, okay. This is where I'm, I'm a little bit out of my, I don't, I mean, well, I mean, I have no idea. Um, I really have no idea. Well, not everyone wants to be with their wife or husband in the afterlife. Oh, well, so I mean, you it's the virgins. No, I mean, you can't assume. <laughs> you can't assume that people are just going to continue in this. Like, that's a little bit. That's also limiting. I mean, that's that's a that's what. Like heaven can be. <laughs> oh, it limits the pleasure to just be with your wife forever. <laughs> but you just may not want to be with the. Like, you might want to. You might want to switch it up a little bit. Wait, so in the afterlife. Wait, wait a second. So in the in the here and now, you commit to someone, and that that can't be violated. But then, as soon as you're in heaven, finally, you can cheat again. No, no, it's not. Well, it's not cheating because it's also a question: Does marriage exist hmm. um, as a sacred? I mean, I don't. I actually don't know. I'd have. To, it's, it's been a long time since I've actually had you know thought through some of these things. There, ha- I mean, I remember having these conversations back in the day. But um, I'd have to kind of consult some scholars yeah. and just make sure I'm updated on some of this stuff. I, I think part of the answer is we don't know. Yeah, we actually have have very little sense of what heaven will actually be like. Right. I um, mean, the Quran, various you know, 
there's also debate about whether certain verses are meant to be interpreted metaphorically. So for example, rivers of wine, like what is that really, like what kind, like what does that actually mean? Mm. Or is that meant to be a stand-in for the, for the more general idea of pleasure without the drawbacks of pleasure? So, you know, presumably if there was wine in heaven, there wouldn't be hangovers. So right. you, you no longer have the trade-off and that is what distinguishes um, um, kind of eternal pleasure from our very temporal kind of pleasure is that there's no longer this, oh, well, every good thing has a bad after effect sort of. Um, okay, well, here's a, here's a, here's a question. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've said before, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. So, you know, this is, this is really, <laughs> this is going to be the level of like college dorm bull session at this point. But uh, uh, is there is there a sense where where uh, that maybe identity doesn't like transfer over at all? Like, are, are we still ourselves? Are you Shadi Hamid over there, or are but here's you the thing, like you but more you, disembodied somehow? The bigger thing is that you just wouldn't care about worldly things anymore. There's something so presumptuous to assume that humans are going to care about the same things in in their state of eternal salvation. Right, and here you are um, doing data and, dumps, though, like. <laughs> I know, which I'm, you know, I, I was being a little bit facetious yeah, when yeah. I started that, but then we sort of got carried away. <laughs> of course, the like the real answer to all this is that you won't care about the data dumps yeah. in heaven, yeah. because and also this is the same thing when people fantasize. Oh, and this is why I'm, I don't like the seventy-two. Ver well, first of all, I don't want to get into the, the theology of that, but even this this sort of very. Um, <clears throat> this very limited physical understanding of pleasure, hmm. the presumption that you would actually be focusing on that and um, <clears throat> putting aside this, you know, the silliness of a lot of the, the conversations around the 72 number, but even if you're talking about any kind of sexual pleasure, hmm. the idea that that would be your priority, like that's what you're gonna be so focused on in the afterlife is also like very human centric. You're not even able to think beyond a very narrow understanding of pleasure. Are the virgins a metaphor? <clears throat> um, look, I'm, look, I mean, I don't, look, I don't want to get into like a can of worms here, yeah, okay, and I don't okay. want. I also don't want to like, le you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, we don't fair have, enough, look, fair um, <laughs> But I think that the bigger issue is that, um, you know. Also, I would like my own perspective. Again, I don't know, but you know, if there's if there's going to be any sort of um, notable pleasure for men, there would have to be the equivalent pleasure for women, or whatever. You know, if men can get whatever whatever they want in a kind of, but it wouldn't be like you know, it wouldn't be human pleasure. Right? So Are there even, even talking men and about women, pleasure though? in the same way? Are there even men and women? I mean, uh, up in heaven. Are there men? And, I mean. Are there men and women? Um, well, what do you mean by, I mean? Well, no, I mean, I, that's what I was sort of getting at. I, I have no idea. Like I really, like I said, I haven't thought about this at all, but in the sense of like, you know, if there, <clears throat> how much but none are of I, these things I, matter anymore? Like the idea of being like a biological man or a biological woman and having genitalia and so forth, right. all of that idea, you know, as far as my understanding would be that a lot of this stuff becomes irrelevant. Right. You know, when you're in the presence of God, all of these other concerns kind of fall to the wayside. Right. Not only do they fall to the wayside, they're not even really part of your conception. Um, but again, we don't. Uh, no one knows any of this for sure. Yeah. But 
like the idea that we would be like, oh my God, I'm a biological man in heaven. Like that just seems like a very odd thing to be concerned about in the afterlife. Oh, right, right. So it's like transhuman instead of transgender. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wow, we really, we, uh, we definitely, this is an interesting little um, rabbit hole we fell into. Yeah, I was I not expecting this. Yeah, me either, me either. Um, <laughs> on that note. On that note, I guess. Uh, yeah. You know what we should do, though? Mm. Um, next time, I think we should have a proper... Um, data dump on Taiwan. Okay, we can do Taiwan. And your like travels, I said, because I believe you went to places that I have never been to. I've never been to Japan. I've never been to Taiwan. I, I, Where else I, did you go? I had, uh, and then places that you have been, Istanbul and Skopje. Uh, you haven't been to Skopje, but... Uh, Is that in Macedonia? Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> yeah, see, I mean, I brought you enough around the region that you you, you, you have a little bit of a yeah, sense. Yeah, and believe it or not, a year ago, I didn't even know where Ukraine was on the map. Yeah. So there's been a lot of, a lot of progress growth. made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I gotta say, uh, I, I, I found, I, I, I'm still, um, marinating in the Japan experience. I just, I thought Japan is, uh, like teriyaki, like teriyaki. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm wow. like a big steak marinating in, in a delicious marinade. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I want to ask you about Japan that is not geopolitical. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you got a sense of the hikimori. We talked ab yes, about them yeah. a little bit with yeah. um, Richard Reeves. And if, for those of you who missed it, that's a must listen to episode. But the hikimori are basically the herbivores. These are like young men who don't get married, who don't have sex, who never like leave their homes. And they, lit I, I guess it's a derogatory term because her just eating plants means that you're not a real man or something. I don't know, but that could be the implication. Yeah, look, um, just very briefly, I mean, there really is a whole rabbit hole we could do like easily a whole episode on on, on this I, I was there for five days uh in tokyo um <clears throat> so obviously I, I i can't like declare one way or the other but i i i i i walk away from my very brief sojourn in, in japan concluding that that issues like that are about as of much import uh as incels are in the real world in america i.e it's just something people write about like it's real it exists. I don't think it's actually that big of a deal. Um, you know, well, it's a big. It is a big of a deal if they're not reproducing. Well, I mean, and, yeah, and, and Japan does have a serious issue with fertility a rates. Serious issue, yes. Uh, they have a serious issue with aging, and yeah, uh, they're below replacement. Uh, a yeah. lot of that, I think, is as much explained by the fact that they have, you know one of the most draconian uh, restrictionist policies on immigration. They just they just don't yeah. allow foreigners in. It's an ethnostate, basically. So when people complain about, um, like, ethnostates, oh, um, Japan is like the, yeah. what? No, yeah, I mean, yes, but ethnostate, <laughs> but like, I, I, you know, what, what I, I really thought on this trip, I would love to just go with you over there uh, and just talk to, like, basically get a grip on Japanese democracy. Because... Uh, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a kind of organic consensus there. It's basically a one party state. There are other parties, but you know, uh, they barely won in the last, you know, I don't know how many years, 80 years. Uh, it's basically a one party state. Most of the, the democratic stuff that happens is within factions within the one party and gets done, not like before the electorate. 
but it's but there democracy. was an alternation of power because I remember this was an issue until the '90s that there was only one party that ever won the LDP, if yeah, I recall. That's right. That's but right. But then eventually there was a party that was able to yeah break through like the twice. LDP, and then the LDP yeah. is back now. Uh, and you know, so but still, so politics right now inside Japan, it's it's not it's it, it's not really electoral politics, you know, from what I could tell. Um, hmm. and, uh, so what is it? How would you describe it if not electoral politics? Well, like I said, like, I, you know, there's factions that, and most of the stuff seems to happen. Most of the debates seem to happen, you know, within the party. Yeah. Uh, and it's all sorts of sort of backroom deals and, and things that happen. I, it's reported on. Uh, and again, there's power brokers that, that do all of this sort of stuff and, you know, horse trading. And I, you know, again, I wasn't there long enough to really get a sense of how politics works, but you get enough of a sense that it's not how you would expect politics to work at all. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. stuff like that is just endlessly fascinating. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reading, uh, uh, obsessively now just about Japan, just sort of trying to, to sort of wrap my head around it. The, the deep sense of, I don't know, social order there is, it's wild. Um, you know, not to say that it's a completely ordered society, not to say there's complete consensus. I mean, these are things that, that I think one could easily jump into when you get there and you don't really know what the hell's going on. So first impressions often are misleading on a lot of this stuff. And yet it, it's just, I, I think it is fair to say that you spend some time over there and you, you start to question uh, how given how most of the foundational things you think about that are required for society to work and flourish. You know, that's the other thing about Japan I think is important to keep in mind. It's an incredibly successful and wealthy society, uh, despite all of the headwinds it's faced, despite the fact that, you know, they haven't had any, you know, growth and, and you know, been sort of flatlining for the longest time. It's still, you know, one of the top economies in the world. It's an incredibly prosperous society. And yet it, it flaunts almost every one of the things that we think is required for it. I mean, just to the, 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 uh, the thing that really jumped out at me is, you know, uh, taking meetings in, 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 um, uh, with, with government officials. Uh, it was all men. Um, you know, women yeah. were, there's uh, two women translators, I think, and, and most of the women we saw would bring tea to the meetings. Uh, there was a story that one of us dug up from BBC last year. It was that the LDP has finally admitted women into party meetings, uh, but they're not allowed to talk. They're only allowed to listen. When? And they can then actually wait. then they can actually then give feedback after the meeting is done. <laughs> wait, that's wait, that's that's yeah. a rule. That's a rule. That was a BBC article from last year. We'll put it in the show notes. Goodness gracious! No, but again, it's it's wild. It's 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 completely just. Different. Okay, I don't want to open a can of worms. Yeah. I do think that part of it has to do with the lack of monotheism. And I think I've maybe alluded to this before, but I mean, one reason I think that um, East Asia, it's very hard to kind of replicate some of these models is because of their very odd religious situation. Uh, monotheistic cultures just tend to be more fractious and combative. If we look individualistic, at the three... though, right? I mean, that's what we're... Yeah. It's the sense of the individual is much lower. And I think that's right. Um, but, you know, again, it's like uh, hard to replicate. We're talking about the majority of the world, shoddy, is the thing, right? You... No, I mean, we're talking about Japan. And, oh, we're and... talking about China, too, though, in that sense. Um, and... Yeah, but that's not even a democracy. I mean, we can't really... No, I mean... no, but the, your your point being that, like, lack of monotheism. Uh, and I mean, you know, when you when you look at that, the sort of non, non-Abrahamic, non if you want to use yeah. that term, 
world is quite big. Um, and, you know, that's why also India is a fascinating place to go to, because I think it it absolutely inverts most of your expectations of, of what undergirds a society. The difference between also India... Also quite fractious, though. So well, might... yeah, no, that's true. That's true. It is more fractious, but it's also it's because it's such, it's such a plural society. I mean, India is this crazy empire. It's like crazy quilt, right? Of like different sub... Uh, sub-peoples somehow living together under this Indian umbrella. Whereas Japan, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, you're right. I don't think there's a Japanese model for it, but but it's, it's. I, I found, you know, my, this very brief stay in Japan has, has uh, spun my head uh, just like my very brief stay in India did, you know, just sort of like, my God, you know, so many things that, that seem recognizable, uh, you know, on the surface, you're like, oh, I see what this is. This is an analog to that. But then you scratch a little bit and it's completely something different, you know? Yeah. Well, um, to be clear, though, J Japan can only be Japan by having very little internal diversity. So it's very, that's when I say it's hard to replicate. It's very, I mean, for Americans um, or Europeans and countries that have much higher levels of ethnic and religious diversity, I mean, it, it's almost, it just, it's weird and not weird in a pejorative sense. It's just weird in a sense that it has very little applicability um, for us as Western observers. Yeah, no, like look, we can't model, I mean. No, for sure. I, I, I mean, I, 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 I hope I wasn't saying that, you know, Japan is something we should emulate. That's not it. It's, it's, I think what's more interesting though, Shadi, is, is, uh, it's the inverse of that, which is to say that uh, I think there's a there's a set of beliefs we have about our system, which is yeah. that it's grounded in uh, a set of premises that we think if you adopt these premises, you will have a successful society. And the only counter that Japan provides to that is not like you should we should all be like Japan, but it's like they have rejected many of these things and are uh, you know apart from low birth rates at the current point and below replacement birth rates and the, the you know, problems that that causes are still a very successful society, a society that has managed to, to create something really, you know, world beating in a lot of ways. Okay, but I do, I do wanna challenge that a little bit and we can talk about this in a future episode, but Japan actually has not been economically successful in the last 30 years. Not, it has never recovered. The last 30 years for sure, for sure. It has never recovered in terms of stuff, you know, I think, I would have to get the exact numbers, but I think that um, its stock market is lower now than it was something like, I don't know, 20, 25 years, 20 years ago or something like that. But um, no, I'm for looking sure. at an article now, 30 years of negative returns from the Nikkei 225, which is the main stock exchange in Japan. You know, So there has been like a stagnation that they've never been able to recover from. At the same time, you know, again, I, I'm not an economist. I haven't followed it very closely. I wonder how that correlates to actual, you know, population stagnation. You know, two little details, just anecdotes from the trip. Uh, this was, uh, we met with people at the U.S. Embassy and, and uh, one of the, the, the staff reserves shared an anecdote. Um, let me try and remember exactly. I think she said that, you know, she, when her parents had come to Japan, uh, you know, she had, had uh, uh, taken a babysitting job and had, was paid, I don't know how much per hour, um, whatever, number of yen per hour. Uh, and now she's here, whatever, like, yeah, 30 years later, um, and her daughter is taking a babysitting job at the exact same rate. 
that she took as a child when she was wow. babysitting. So, you know, like basically what you're looking at is zero, zero, zero inflation, you know, over, over decades. And so what's happening now in Japan is actually they finally got some inflation going with a lot of this sort of stuff. And it's actually very disruptive for them. They don't even know how to deal with it, you know? So that's just a, a, a simple little like uh, um, fascinating thing. Uh, there was another sort of labor market thing, but it's just slow. Oh, my fertility mind. rate? Okay, so Japan's yeah. fertility rate it's very, it's quite a bit lower than replacement. It's at 1.34 births per women uh, as of 2020. South Korea, remarkably, is 0 0.84. I'll have to look cl more closely at that. That's remarkable. Well, I mean, South Korea's got also insane politics. I really need to go over there to sort of get a sense of that because I, I think that's an, another one that would just be endlessly fascinating. I, I remember the other... Um, uh, the other sort of weird like econ data point on this, uh, young people have stopped learning English in Japan. Why? Uh, because of the aging population, uh, unemployment's actually very low. Uh, there's a lot of jobs uh, because <laughs> there's not enough people to fill them. So, uh, Wait, well, how does that affect learning English? Because though? you don't have to go abroad. Like, there's no there's no impetus or anything to go, and you know, it's just basically the the economy is sustaining itself that way. And so, you know, like th there's. There's, it's it's definitely true that the country is not growing. Um, it's absolutely false that the country is immiserated as a result. Uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And, uh, you know, they have like an incredibly, you know, high trust society that, again, I, 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 I won't say that it works just fine because I, I, I don't know enough and I haven't, I didn't really leave Tokyo, so I have no idea how the rest of the country looks like. Um, but, but if you're but, a woman, for example, it's probably not great. Uh, clearly, yeah. I mean, clearly, it's it's uh, it's it's certainly not up to our standards. I'll put it that way to to be to understate it. <laughs> but um, you know, it's still it's one of these things that that's that's uh, it just you, you have to um, ask yourself is like you know. Obviously, there's trade-offs to not uh, lionizing the individual. Um, there are trade-offs to growth, to ambition, to you know personal fulfillment. As but it's also how we define it, um, and these trade-offs manifest in different sort of ways. And you know that's the thing about I, I you know if you remember when even before the uh, Richard Reeves episode we talked about the the incels in Japan, and I was saying like ah this is just some fucking journalist bullshit. Um, yeah. And and I I I I walk away sort of still feeling that you know it's 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 there's a there's a uh, it's it's not that the society is not facing headwinds and troubles but they're dealing with it in their own way um, and uh, I do think that a lot of the analysis that I've read seems to I think be confounded with what it finds and then just draw sort of, I think, simplistic conclusions along the lines of, well, you know, they failed to uh, allow immigrants in and, uh, you know, they're, they're facing headwinds on reproduction and, uh, you know, uh, the status of their women is, is, is uh, you know, limited. They can't, they can't climb up in society and things like that. And therefore, it's a failed state. Um, we but may no not like some of failed, the trade-offs that they've made, does but anyone it's not, use yeah, but, yeah but no one's saying it's a failed state. It but, just yeah, but that's the thing. Like, the, I think this is why it's like I think that the the focus on the the incel culture in Japan is like, meh, I mean, you know, whatever. It's like there, there have been a lot of articles written about the incel culture in our country, which I also think is, you know, if someone was coming to learn about the United States and spent 
more than five seconds thinking about incels. I think they're 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 wasting their <laughs> fucking time. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't think incels actually matter. Like, it's 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 a it's a weird little artifact of our stupid journalist culture that we focus on this stuff. It just does not. But matter. the fact that boys and men are falling behind does matter. It's um, not the same yeah. thing, but there is some overlap. Some overlap, sure, sure. But then again, you know, I mean, I, I, I again, to, not to tune our own horn, but I, I really like that conversation with with Richard about that because I think he has actually a, a pretty nuanced and realistic way of of talking about that, which is that you know, it's not the end of the world. It's just it's it's a fact. It's something that's happening, and you know, uh, as a policy person, we may want to address it, but it's not. It's it's part of many secular trends, and you know, like. We'll deal with it. As that's that's how I remember that essay that that uh, that episode sort of ending up. It felt right? more okay. That's interesting because it felt it felt more like a crisis to me. Remember, he refused Richard's to say book. crisis. Do you remember that? He was like, "It's not a crisis." <laughs> that was his point. I, I really liked that. I, I really respected that. That he was like, "I don't, I don't know." That's like a crisis of Richard, masculinity. Yeah, I mean, Richard is British. Yeah, they, you know, he's uh, stiff upper lip. <laughs> but look, is anything really the end of the world in the end? In the end, Except it might be. the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. On that note. On that note. This is the end. <laughs> this is really okay, the end. <laughs> All right, Sean. This is great. Yeah. Welcome back. Thank Talk you. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.